Shrinkwrap Radio number 793, Douglas Fleming's Ph.D. on the heart and mind of hypnotherapy. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrinkwrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dave. Is it true that all hypnosis is self hypnosis? Is it true that there's no unique brain state associated with hypnotic trance? Today's guest is eminently qualified to speak to these questions and more. My guest today is Douglas Flemons, Ph.D., and we'll be discussing his work and his book, The Heart and Mind of Hypnotherapy. Dr. Douglas Flemons, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you, David. It's a delight to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you here, and we're going to be discussing your very impressive book, The Heart and Mind of Hypnotherapy. And um, I, I have a particular interest in that topic. I don't know if you're aware of that. Um, I did my clinical psych doctoral dissertation at the University of Michigan in 1970 on the role of attention in hypnosis and meditation. Oh, wow, really? That's incredible. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and it was kind of um, ahead of its time, and certainly in terms of a doctoral dissertation at the University of Michigan, it was pretty groundbreaking because it was it was pretty short. <laughs> I was eager to get out of there, and but I had a long-standing interest in in hypnosis and hypnotherapy, and in altered states of consciousness more generally. But that would have been groundbreaking. Each of those topics alone would have been groundbreaking in 1970 for you to investigate and then for you to combine them. That's fabulous. Yeah. Well, I was really fascinated by attention. And I thought, hey, attention to me seems to be like the the, the key thing here that we need to understand in, in altered states and particularly both in meditation and in hypnosis. And so... The, in the design of my study, I had people following their breath, and they had a little clicker button to click every time they had to bring themselves back. Mm. And um, not as good as being able to put electrodes in a person's brain or you know, some other. <laughs> oh, dang, I didn't get to do the electrodes. This yeah, time. some other way of monitoring uh, the brain that would be available today. So it was a pretty crude measure. Um. So I just wanted you to know that uh, that I come to hypnosis with a, a long interest, and I've also interviewed people here like Bill O'Hanlon and uh, many of the people actually that you mentioned in your book. Um, so, yeah. so I'm not starting from ground z- ground zero, but at the same time, uh, my knowledge is outdated. Uh, I've been retired a long time. I've been retired from clinical practice a very long time. And uh, I think things have changed, and I found your book to really be very, very illuminating, you know, despite the background that I had. Well, thank you. Bill O'Hanlon's wonderful. I really appreciate how he thinks and works. And uh, if you've been reading him and talking to him, then it will give you certainly a, a good foundation for our conversation. Yeah, good. So before we dive into all of that, um, Maybe we can, um, you know, if, before we dive into your book properly, maybe we can learn a bit about your background, uh, your educate. Let's start off with your education. What's your, uh, give us the overview of your educational history. Uh, well, in first grade, <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
we won't go that far back. I, I'm a brief therapist, so I actually don't go much back into history when I'm working with people. Right. I um, I'm uh, welcoming of it if it comes into the conversation, but I <laughs> I certainly don't go to people's first grade experience. I um, I am from Canada. I got a bachelor's degree from the university um, university in um, British Columbia called Simon Fraser, okay. kind of the the yeah. Berkeley of Canada okay. when I when I attended uh, very cutting edge. Um, when I was there, I learned took a course from a systems theorist on um, Gregory Bateson's ideas, and that got me fired up. I changed my life, and I went looking for a master's program in family therapy because I discovered, actually, after I finished my undergraduate education, that he had been one of the, the founding idea mavens of family therapy. So yes. I went searching for that. Got a master's degree um, at the University University of British Columbia in counseling psych with a, with a specialty in family therapy, and then headed south of the border to get a doctorate in family therapy. First went to uh, Texas Tech where Brad Keeney was. He was a family therapist expert on Bateson, so I went there because of him, and he transferred out um, when I was just starting my dissertation, he transferred out to Nova University at the time, it's now Nova Southeastern, to start a doctoral program out there. And I and some of my colleagues took him up on an offer to go out and finish our degree there and then start teaching. So that's what I did. Finished my dissertation at Nova, graduated from Nova, although the coursework was primarily from Texas Tech. And then I taught there for 31 years in the family therapy program. Okay, great. Thank you for uh, being willing to go through all of that. You are now healed. You can go. You're discharged. So when did you first learn about hypnosis? Maybe nobody nobody gets through life these days without having heard of hypnosis. Do you recall when you first heard of it? I remember when I was uh, in elementary school, a friend of mine uh, and I uh, drew a spiral on a on a record-sized disc and put it on our turntable and turned the turntable on to see if it would hypnotize us. Yeah. Um, it didn't. Okay. <laughs> it spun so quickly, it was just a blur. But yeah. that uh, that's the first time I remember being curious about it. Uh, my first clinical experience was I was in a master's program, in the master's program I mentioned, and uh, one of the faculty members offered a 10 our workshop on the weekend on hypnosis. And um, I had been doing meditation for a while before uh-huh. I went into the into the master's program for, I don't know, four or five years. And uh, I was intrigued, like you, on the interesting parallels between what, what would um, meditation that I know about help me to understand about hypnosis. So I took it, and then I never looked back. Uh, uh, another faculty member introduced me to um, Milton Erickson's work. And then I went in at Texas Tech, I took a doctoral course in hypnosis. And then I started um, teaching workshops and started introduce, introduced a doctoral course on hypnosis in for my doctoral students and taught that for 30 years. So yeah. Um, I th- I'm under the impression that hypnosis has been clouded by all sorts of myths out there. Absolutely. And um, uh, what are some of the myths that come to mind? Uh, and I know we'll get into them in more depth as we go along here, but. Um, I think the most uh, critically important and problematic one is that it's something that a hypnotist does to a client so that it's an imposed um, effect um, that the hypnotist hypnotizes a client. For me, that's analogous to saying that a therapist therapizes their client. We don't therapize. We we can able to recognize that therapizing has a connotation of somehow being improperly, ineffectually impositional, and the same is true of hypnosis. Somebody that's that's um, attempting to impose hypnotic experience on somebody else, which is what you get if you watch a 
<clears throat> YouTube of a hypnotist, if they're doing that, what you get is rather than trance experience, you get transgression experience. They're, huh. they're um, manipulating in order to um, look impressive themselves or to get an audience to laugh. And that has absolutely nothing to do with, with what's actually going on. Well, it has something to do with the fact that it's possible to alter somebody's experience by being a transgressional bully, but that's not obviously what we want to do as clinicians. Right, right. Now, um, you you got training very early on, so you probably didn't subscribe to any of those myths, or was there a period where, can you think of any any mistaken beliefs that you had that you had to discard along the way? Oh, absolutely. My, so that first workshop was great. I loved the, the teacher. Um, it uh, unsettled me because I discovered that um, I could talk and somebody could have a reaction and it just seemed it made no sense to me. Um, but he did us a disservice. In this workshop, he gave us soft furniture to work with, actually mats for people to lie on. He dimmed the lighting and he put on soft, ethereal, new agey kind of music. And so I um, attributed the effect of what I was doing, maybe it was because I wasn't confident enough in in my choice of and use of language, um, that the softness was an important critical part of it. So when I went out and started trying to uh, use this with clients, I was in an internship in my master's program. I was desperately wanting to have ethereal music, have soft lighting and, and that's nice, comfortable place for them to sit. And that wasn't really possible. And I felt constrained because of it. Yeah. You know, there's another myth that um, that I think is held by actually many professionals that you uh, think you kind of dispel in your book that all hypnosis is self hypnosis, and I think yeah. I think I believed that for a long time, and uh, maybe until I read your book. Uh, <laughs> but you know, you you spoke about language and that's one of the things that uh, I want to let our listeners and viewers know is you're very careful about your language and yeah well I, that idea of all hypnosis being self-hypnosis is a corrective of that other myth that I mentioned so clinicians that are sensitive to not wanting to um, put themselves on the client right. to, to manipulate say, okay, so it's not me doing something to you, you're doing it, and I'm just facilitating, but it's self-hypnosis. Um, so it's, it's, an, it's a lovely attempt at a corrective to manipulation. The thing is that what both versions misconstrue is that hypnosis is a relationship. And, and what's happening is a synergy and an attunement between the two people that are involved um, so that if you say that all hypnosis is self-hypnosis, it removes the relationship from the equation and it mis misrepresents what's actually happening. Yeah, yeah, and that really came through clearly uh, in the book. Um, in the 19s, you know, you mentioned trance, and, and trance is a, an interesting concept, I think, that uh, hypnosis has been perhaps burdened by uh, through, throughout its history into the present, I think. In the 1970s, there was an intense controversy around the idea of hypnotic trance. And Theodore Barber, I don't know if he's still around. I, I, you reference him in the book. He might yeah. still be around. He was a, a vociferous critic in debunking the idea of trance and saying that basically it was relaxation and... Uh, and some variants on that. And so there was kind of a, a, a hunt in for neuroscientific correlates so that you could identify it with a with, with a brain scan or EEG or something to say, ah, this is the trance. Here's the trance in the brain. But I'm under the impression that that's never been, never that never happened, wasn't found. Yeah, they haven't been able to, to go in and um, 
isolate trance uh, as some sort of brain pattern. Um, I don't know, you may not have even noticed this in reading my book, but I wrote that whole book without using the word. Well, I wondered, I, I didn't encounter the word. And uh, so thank you. I didn't read every single word in the book. And so I would have attributed it maybe to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I find it unnecessary. But in other things I've written, um, I've used the term. And, and so here's my take on it. The root of the word trance is the same etymological source as the word transit. Um, and, and it means to carry across or to go across or to move across. Mm. Um, so uh, I'm interested in the mind-body relationship, or as I talk about in the book, uh, relationship between what conscious awareness, back to your curiosity, conscious awareness and the rest of the self, whether that's conscious awareness in the body, body communications, or conscious awareness and unbidden um, experience that not necessarily um, recognized as coming from the body like thoughts. So if you have intrusive thoughts, you have a, a sense of attention or a sense of self that's encountering thoughts that are coming at you and, and bothering you. So that relationship between conscious awareness and some part of your experience of self that's not identified as me, mm -hmm. so my thoughts are bothering me. The thoughts are separate from me. Yeah. Um, that what happens in both meditation and hypnosis is that um, boundary between what I call a circumscribed self, the conscious awareness, and the rest of the self, that that boundary dissolves. In meditation, that happens by watching the breath and having the awareness of what's happening in the body be in sync with what's happening in the body. So that the awareness of the breath in coincides with the breath in, the awareness of the breath out coincides with the breath out. And that resonance between them dissolves the difference between them. And you have a mind-body connection as a function of that um, attention. Something similar is happening in, in hypnosis where the, the hypnotist is facilitating uh, that mind-body connection between the person's awareness and their experience. So the, the dissolution of that boundary or the dissolving of that boundary can be understood as a crossing of, a of the boundary, but the boundary in crossing over a boundary between two countries if it's not marked, it becomes irrelevant. You don't you don't mark the differences between them, and that that's what the hypnotist's, hypnotist's job is is to facilitate the dissolution of the boundary, the crossing over. So trance, if you understand it as the same as transit, this movement across a boundary, then I'm comfortable using it. If you try to think of it in terms of a state, like an altered state, where it's usually used. Um, I think it's more useful to recognize that what alters in a, in a hypnotic situation um, is an alteration in the whole relationship. If you, if you turn a light switch on in your house, there's many changes that happen in order for a light to illuminate. The switch is connected through copper wires. Um, it completes a circuit that, um, that in a sense, the switch goes away because it's just part of a circuit um, that brings electricity and allows the, the lamp to, to light. So that the, the altered state includes the whole circuit, not just the lamp, not just the light. So I'm comfortable in saying, sure, hypnosis is an altered state. If you, if you then think of the state as being encompassing of the relationship between the the individuals involved, and they're in an altered kind of, so another way to put it, an altered communication, an altered way of right. connecting and communicating between each other. But the altered state is not sleep. And uh, we've been burdened by the metaphor of sleep uh, ever since uh, James Braid, you go through some of the, some of the history. Yes. Uh, and uh, that's where sleep first came in. And so the standard patter, patter that I think many people still use is to use the metaphor of sleep. You're getting sleepier and sleepier. Sure. And um, 
so yeah, so that's I, I was going to ask you to define hypnosis, but to give us the modern definition of hypnosis, but I think you already have. And in the book, you actually circumamb circumambulate uh -huh. <laughs> around I meander. Yes. Yeah, a meander around a lot of ideas and a lot of history and so on to eventually get to, to a definition of hypnosis, which I think you've just given us that it's about the relationship and a special relationship. And I'm interested that. Well, I would add one more thing, though. You're, you're I, I could. Can I add one more thing to the definition? Okay, go ahead. And what constitutes hypnosis? And, and you asked for. What is the modern definition? My definition is not something that you would typically find in a hypnotic journal. In fact, what I did in the first chapter of the book is in a, in a sense, um, take a position in contradistinction to what's been offered within APA attempts to define hypnosis um, in that I'm bringing a relational perspective to it that can't be found there. What all hypnotists though would, would agree with is that what constitutes a hypnotic relationship or hypnotic experience is the introduce, introduction of avolitional, non-volitional, non-purposive responsiveness. So the person discovers themselves able to have something happening that they don't ascribe to themselves doing it. They're not taking responsibility for it, and yet something is happening, and it feels like it's happening without them intending for it to happen. And it's that shift into evolutional experience that constitutes hypnosis. I'm totally in agreement with that. And the question is then, how do you facilitate that happening? And it absolutely isn't uh, a condition of sleep. You're you're so right. Yeah, and I'm struck by the by your comfort with the word facilitator. Uh, mm -hmm. So, on the one hand, the hypnotist doesn't hypnotize doesn't do something imposes will i guess yeah. on the on the subject but he's a facilitator what's the distinction there so to help us all <laughs> get that. sure you are connecting with the client in a very um, um synergistic way and um, making use of that connection to allow for a connection between the person and their own experience, that mind-body connection. And so, I don't know, I'm Canadian, uh, where we have the sport of curling. I don't know if you know what curling is. <clears throat> Olympic <clears throat> sport of sweeping it the is, ice yes. before the... That's right. Yeah. So you, you have a stone with a smooth bottom and a guy or a woman... Um, throws the stone, doesn't throw it, um, slides the stone down a, a glass, uh, an ice rink. And then there's people on his or her team with brooms and they're sweeping in order to help steer where the stone goes. Well, the analogy isn't ideal, but in a sense, we're more like the sweepers. We're, we're helping to make possible something to emerge that is uh, a, a natural attribute of a mind-body connection. Chick sent me Hai, the psychologist who talked about flow. Yes. His descriptions of what flow experience are is, is very useful for making sense of what's happening in hypnosis. You have a deep absorption, you have some sort of task that the person feels capable of doing, doesn't feel too overwhelming, but it's not boring. And they're engaged in it such that they lose track of time and they're able to do things effortlessly. That's yeah. what flow is, and that's what hypnosis is. So we're yeah. We're there to set the conditions, to create the conditions for a natural ability that we all have to get into flow experience. And then what the hypnotherapist does is make use of it for, for clinical reasons. Another point that uh, I really like in the book that you brought out is that there is no hypnotherapy per se. And maybe you can elaborate on that. Well, yeah, that's another argument in the field. There's so many controversies. It helps keep things fresh. You know, everybody's um, energized to figure out their discrepant ideas. So there is an idea that there's no, uh, among some people, that there's no such thing as hypnotherapy. And I tell a story about uh, giving a talk after my 
a book that I wrote 20 years ago on hypnosis of one mind was published. I was in a bookstore talking about it. And I mentioned that I'm a hypnotherapist and a guy, a psychologist put his hand up and said, um, the idea that there's such a thing as hypnotherapy, it's a myth. Um, there's nothing inherently therapeutic about hypnosis. What I said to him was, yeah, I guess you could take that position, but then there's psychotherapy and there's nothing inherently therapeutic about the psyche. Um, so it's a matter of what is your orientation to making change, to allowing for change to happen? And if you use hypnosis as a vehicle for doing that, um, and you're thinking in terms of how do minds and bodies change, hypnosis is a wonderful um, vehicle for making that possible. And in that sense, I think the term hypnotherapist makes a lot of sense. What I took from, from the book was that uh, there's, and what I think you said is that there is no specific hypnotherapy. In other words, um, I'm not sure I'm going to say this in a good way. Um, basically, I believe you're saying that any approach to therapy, any any therapeutic orientation that, that one might have in their practice already, could be, could fit into a, a hypnothera into hypnosis. And well, actually, what you're, what you're articulating there is is rather more the standard idea that hypnosis is an adjunct to a psychotherapeutic model. So a CBT therapist can do great CBT, but if they wanted to do to use hypnosis, then they would be using hypnosis within the model-specific orientation of, of their approach, and it would be an adjunct to CBT. And I'm actually saying um, something different. Okay. Um, when Freud first stumbled into hypnosis, this is pre-free association, um, he, he was very intrigued with using it, and, and psychotherapy and hypnosis were basically the same. Uh, when Milton Erickson used hypnosis, um, you couldn't really distinguish Here's when here here's where the hypnosis starts and here's where the therapy ends or here's where the hypnosis ends and here's where therapy starts. Hypnotherapy and psychotherapy and family therapy in his work are all so integrated you can't you can't pull them apart. So rather than take the approach, let me let me outline a set of um, model specific ideas and then say how can we use hypnosis as a technique within that. My way of approaching it was to say, here's how minds and bodies communicate. Here's, here's how minds change their mind. Here's how bodies and minds learn. And hypnosis is tied into the way bods, bods, um, bodies and minds work. And the ability in flow experience to have something happen without intent um, bodes well for being able to take a problem that has itself a quality of um, abolitional movement. I can't control the fact that these intrusive thoughts come. I can't control my anxiety attacks and so on. That, that I'm able to use a, a, a way of relating, my client's way of relating to their body in a, in a hypnotic way to alter this unfortunate abolitional experience called a symptom such that um, it, it keys into the way minds and bodies work, change, and learn to facilitate therapeutic change. So it's it's non-model specific in the same way that rapport is non-model um, specific. You, you have the, the, the importance of the therapeutic relationship being important across all models. And in a sense, the hypnotic relationship is usable regardless of the model. You, to me, you, you've cleverly hooked on to a piece of the traditional hypnotic pattern, which has been to uh, your hand is getting lighter and lighter, and uh, and and that the person can have an experience of not volitionally doing it mm -hmm. themselves, and 
you're using that kind of as a as a metaphor to say, uh, see, if you can do that non-volitionally, you also can non-volitionally change some of the things that are bothering you in your life. Um, I don't know that I ever encountered that way of looking at it anywhere else before. Yeah. Um, you, you put your finger on the heart of hypnotic change. So much of <clears throat> psychotherapy underscores the division between the perceiving self through logical, rational self, and then what are construed as irrational behaviors or irrational emotions. And there's a championing of let's let's think let's think logically about this as a way of trying to overcome or control, contain, cure some quality of experience that that seems untoward, right? Um, so it is a shift to say, let's instead um, of championing this conscious awareness, the circumscribed nature of that and trying to help it win over some quality of unfortunate um, symptomatology, rather let's, um, let's make sense of the symptoma symptomatic behavior um, and alter the relationship to it. So instead of trying to control it, contain it, cure it, um, extricate it from experience, that will go in exactly the opposite direction. Just as hypnotic experience happens by creating some kind of body mind-body connection, what happens if we create a connection between the person's awareness and their problematic experience? It starts changing as a function of a shift in the relationship because it's really nothing itself other than part of the relationship of the awareness and, and body experience. So we're altering the problem by altering the relationship and the way that we alter the relationship is to facilitate connection. And that then facilitates avolitional responsiveness, allowing the problem that is itself a manifestation of avolitional um, conditioning to avolitionally shift. That's the whole logic of it. My mind's going all over the place here. <laughs> um, you mentioned Freud and his early fascination with hypnosis. And I'm wondering if we know what he did. Because hypnosis has gone through, uh, you know, a lot of changes, starting with mesmerism. Yep. You know, starting with hand passes over the body without touching. Um, and... Uh, and it's coming to mind that there, uh, there are cultural issues here. Uh, you reference, uh, in talking about Bateson and his work, you reference trance and dance in Bali. And, and we've seen films of, and ceremonies of uh, people uh, in, in voodoo ceremonies and in our country and in uh, people who are uh, into speaking in tongues and so on. And, being possessed by the Holy Spirit. So it seems like there is some kind of capacity that people have to access another state of consciousness for which a word like trance seems to make sense, that they go into some sort of an altered state. So I'm just thinking out loud here, and uh, you can respond however you want to. Sure. So back to what I was saying earlier about the altered state. Um, it makes sense to me to, to conceive of that as an altered relationship between awareness and experience. So instead of, um, instead of setting uh, or undertaking action the way that we usually do, for example, you just took a sip of coffee. And if, if we were to interview you about that, you would probably say, like most people, yeah, I, I thought a, another uh, drink would, would be good. I was thirsty, so I decided to have another sip of my coffee. So you take credit that this circumscribed self of you, your conscious awareness, 
decides, believes that it decides, chooses a cup of coffee, and then sends out a signal to your arm that brings it up to your lips and you decide to take a sip. That's actually not the way it works at all. What the, the neuroscientists have discovered is that you, you certainly decided to lift your coffee cup, but the decision was made unconsciously and it was reported to your conscious awareness and your conscious awareness took credit for it. So then it, it believes that it decided, but actually it's just being reported that it's happening and it gets on board and says, oh yeah, yeah, that was my idea. Well, it actually wasn't, it happened before that. Okay, so, so that's the way we typically think consciously of how things work. What happens with hypnosis is we enter into um, uh, an unfolding of experience of the way that it is actually working. And that is lots of things are being instituted unconsciously. Uh, that is they're, they're being initiated and, and the conscious self is not responsible for it. It just in regular conscious awareness, it thinks it is. So it's, it's making possible these flow experiences. And you mentioned some great ones, um, trans uh, dancers in Bali and, and shamans and, and voodoo and so on, and Freud, all of them are um, creating the conditions for an experience of um, flow where, where conscious decision-making is, is unnecessary. And, and cool stuff happens as a function of that, that um, connection between awareness and, and the rest of the self. Yeah, you uh, talk about Descartes and the mind-body split. Yep. And um, I think that, that his thinking had a, <clears throat> had a huge impact on our culture so that we live in a, by and large, we live in a culture that places a lot of emphasis on volitional willpower agency. Yep. And I'm thinking that in so-called primitive cultures, that they are, they have a different experience, a different worldview um, in which those sharp boundaries that we have perhaps don't exist. And so they don't have to fight with the, the categories, you know, that, that we stumble over. Well, you just said something so important about fighting with categories. So uh, yeah, Descartes, uh, did us a great disservice. He, he, he helped a lot. Mathematics benefited tremendously from um, Cartesian graphs that he invented. But, but in terms of epistemology, he did us a disservice saying, so I got my, my thinking and my thinking is distinct from my body, doesn't need my body. And, and it's still here now, even in characterizations of hypnosis, clinicians, even researchers will talk about um, using hypnosis to help the mind get control over the body. And it's that same idea that you've got this body doing unfortunate things. So if we can only train your mind to get control of it, then everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. What that does is it characterizes the relationship between mind body as um, contentious. To control, the root of the word control is to turn against. The con is the against troll turning. So you turn against the thing that you want to behave itself, whether it's a thought or a behavior or emotion or whatever it happens to be, anxiety, emotion, something. <clears throat> and so it has contention built in and the idea that there's a, a fundamental division. And what, what traditional cultures were really good at and, and some um, philosophers in our, in our own tradition have recognized that you start with a condition of connectedness and the separations that happen through the divisions of consciousness are, are artifacts of, of the pulling apart. And then you fight with them, as you said. So we can, we can diagnose a set of um, symptoms. Somebody has um, sweaty palms and their, their thoughts get fuzzy when they're encountering some big challenge. 
and their chest gets tight and their heart's pounding out of their chest. And we say, oh, well, so you have anxiety and we diagnose it. And then we try to help them fight the anxiety effectively or use hypnosis to get control over the anxiety. And all of that, if that's how you approach it, you're building contention into the whole, not only the conception, but the attempted amelioration. The alternative is to say, no, 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 let's wait a minute. The, the diagnosis, the label that we've created to try to make sense of what you're experiencing has us then treating this as a demarcated something, as a thing. Um, and we're going, what do you do with things that you don't want? You do something to them, you try to get rid of them. So contention is built in. And the logic of hypnosis is the, op is the opposite. Instead of countering it, you encounter it. You engage with it and you find ways for it to not have to be anymore, for it to dissolve its significance. So rather than trying to extricate it from the, from the person, rather than trying to control it, you're helping facilitate a connection to it and it becoming irrelevant or unnecessary. So a, a lot of what you're talking about is the dissolution of boundaries. Yes. And, um, and you cover that one of the ways that we habitually create boundaries is through judgment. Uh, and this links up to mindfulness and so on, where in, in mindfulness meditation, we hopefully learn to let the stuff pop up <laughs> and accept it without judgment. Whatever comes up, just accept it. Yes. And, um, and with practice, uh, with practice, that's where uh, that becomes easier and easier to do in an experience of of release or, or bliss or something like that becomes possible. Judgment is an automatic separator. Yes. When, when, when you judge me, you distinguishing yourself from me. Right. When I judge you, same thing. If I judge my own experience, oh, that's that's unfortunate, that's bad, or even if that's good, if I'm judging it, by virtue of that, I'm separating myself from being immersed in the experience, and it creates this separation, and that's the opposite of what we're trying to do with hypnosis. Right. And it's the opposite of what happens with meditation. If you want a mind-body connection, you get rid of judgment because it creates a mind-body distinction. And this leads to uh, what I thought was a really important chapter in your book on empathy. And mm -hmm. you, uh, you break down empathy and actually produce some uh, scripts as, as you've taught people uh, in your workshops, I guess, in your training and your supervision to practice empathy. I should let you speak about that, but I have to say, to me, that chapter is worth whatever the book costs. People, mm -hmm. people should buy this book. Therapists, people, helpers of all stripes should buy this book for that chapter because we bandy the word empathy around. But um, to really make, you're suggesting that therapists should be very active in making empathic statements, reflective statements. I don't have that skill, and uh, but I could see that, wow, I could really use that skill. It's definitely a, a learnable, <clears throat> eminently learnable skill, and, and it stems from uh, a clear conception of what empathy is. Um, in the popular culture, it's often um, used as a synonym, synonym of uh, sympathy. Yeah. And and it isn't. Uh, I, I, we won't have time for me to, to delve into it deeply, but it was invented by um, German philosophers of aesthetics as a way to care in uh, just about the time of Freud. As a, and he was the first one to bring empathy into psychotherapy through these um, philosophers. Um, it was invented as a way to try to make sense of how artwork moves uh, the observer. And, and the philosopher said, well, it happens as a function of you throwing your 
your curiosity into the work of art that you're that you're feeling your your um, visceral sensibility um you're you're hallucinating it this is my language not theirs uh hallucinating yourself inside the work of art to make sense of it from the inside rather than from uh, the position of judgment from outside so back to judgment quickly Freud brilliantly said our way to be our relationship with our patients should not be one of judgment but one of empathy where we're where we're striving to make sense of the other person's experience um, from from inside the logic of what's going on for them so empathy in, starts with this curiosity to know it's not a i'm going to feel with you that's sympathy the root of the word sympathy is to feel with the root of the word empathy is to feel into so you're projecting yourself um, um, imagination-wise into the experience of the other person to make sense of it from their perspective. And then you're communicating that understanding as it's developing. So a very common misunderstanding of how empathy can be well communicated is to say, oh, David, I know what you're talking about, man. I've been in that same place. It's really tough. And that's thought of as an empathic statement. I would characterize that as a claim of sympathy. That is, I've had something the same as yours and you should trust me because, um, or, or, or trust that I um, know what you're talking about because yeah. I've gone through something similar. Empathy is really quite different from that. Rather than claiming that I understand you, your uh, my job is to demonstrate that I understand. And I do that by floating my best guesses as to what's going on. A trivial example, that, that coffee must have tasted pretty good. It'd been a long time since you'd had a sip. So finally being able to have that sip of coffee probably wet your whistle. Thank and you. <laughs> so so that's an empathic statement, a, a hunch. If I'm right, you'll say, you're right, tasted really good. If I'm wrong, you'll say, yeah, no, I didn't really need it. Uh, I wasn't really that thirsty. So then I'm going to adjust my understanding based on your correction of me and we'll continue on with a series of um, back and forth um, communicational nuggets so that I'm going to be refining my, my grasp of what's going on for you. And you're going to be hearing me do that in real time. And the closer I get, the more that you will feel like I have a good handle on what's going on for you. That's what empathy is. So I would say that I didn't offer scripts because you can't do it scripted. What I offered was examples of yeah. how it's done so that you can get the feel for it because it really is, has to be extemporaneous. You do something, you say something, I try to make sense of it, I throw it out, you tell me I'm right, I'm not quite right, you clarify, I refine my understanding, try back again, and we together... Uh, develop an empathic connection as a function of that. What struck me about it was that it was so active that yeah. uh, that in your examples, you had the therapist really responding after every sentence that the client is saying and demonstrating that empathy. And, and we know the concept of empathy largely, I think, through the work of Carl Rogers, yes. who was a champion for that. And I used to show uh, films in my uh, counseling classes, these really old, old films now, the Gloria, Gloria, yeah. the Gloria films. Yeah. And, um, and I would challenge, you know, and the popular conception was that he would parrot back something. Mm -hmm. And I, so I would urge my still, I would challenge, I say, that's not what he's, what he's doing is a lot more subtle than that. And to, to experience that, I challenge you to figure out what he's going to say. Mm -hmm. And nobody can do that. You know, nobody, <laughs> what he yeah. says is, comes out of some unique thing, but also uh, it's not as active as, uh, as the examples that you give. I find that in myself, I often felt like I was too passive because I wasn't responding enough. And it's easy to get in as a therapist. 
it's easy to get into nodding your head and saying, mm hmm, nodding your head, mm hmm, and that is masking as some kind of empathy. But I found that I was some of the time rocking my head to sleep in a certain way. <laughs> sure. When when you nod when you nod your head uh, as your client's speaking, that's another claim of understanding, and and so the client takes the nodding in and says, "Okay, you're following me." There's no guarantee because you haven't given any evidence that you actually get it. Yeah. If you have a very loquacious client, it also is a nonverbal indicator. Keep going. Please continue. So, uh, yeah, what I'm offering as an alternative is. If you intersperse yourself, or as I talk about in the book, interlace yourself in what unfolds, it becomes a kind of conversation between the two of you rather than a soliloquy on the part of your client with you nodding yeah. along. And then it allows you to, to not only um, help them grasp that you're grasping them, which alters the boundary between the two of you, um, it also helps you steer the conversation so that if um, if you're thinking that the direction that they're going is not going to be helpful, uh, if they're going to tell you a story, that, as I was joking around when we first started, well, in first grade, um, if I were your client and I was starting in first grade and you're really interested in what had been going on in the last couple of years, and you don't have any way of interlacing yourself in the conversation to alter the course of its unfolding, then you're signing on for the, oh boy, the next hour, I'm just going to hear yeah. and on Tuesday of that year. So, so being able to intersperse your comments gives you the floor and allows you then to alter the course of the interaction and, and helping you gather the information that you really need. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking at the clock and um, we're in the closing phases here time-wise, I think. And I wonder if th there's anything else that you want to be sure to get in here that, uh, that our conversation hasn't, uh, hasn't elicited. Uh, well, one thing that just occurred to me as we were talking about empathy is that it would be worth making a connection between what happens in an empathic encounter and what happens in meditation. They both have to do with boundary alteration. If you're my client and you're telling me um, what's been going on with you, and I do a good job of empathically capturing the essence of that for you, so that you're then agreeing with what I say, and that's what I'm looking for. I'm going to make a statement. Do you agree with me? If you disagree, then correct me, and then I'm going to say something and you agree with that. Then what you have is your, dis, your experience, your description of your experience, and my translation of that description of your experience back to you. And if all of those are in, in keeping with one another, if they're all in sync, then the boundary between my translation of your description of your experience dissolves. You're hearing coming back from me a version of what you've been feeling and you're describing that resonates with you, when that boundary dissolves between my um, empathic characterizations and your descriptions of your experience, when that boundary dissolves, the boundary between you and I dissolves. And that allows you in my vernacular to feel more of one mind, that we are, we are connected in, a, in an intimate way. What we talked about a few minutes ago with meditation is that if you're following your breath um, and you're, you're managing to, your awareness of breathing in is matching the breathing in, then the boundary between your awareness and your experience dissolves and you feel um, this flow experience with yourself. So the reason I talk so um, extensively about empathy in a book on hypnotherapy is that what you're doing as a hypnotherapist, but also with just as a regular therapist, if you're working in this very close, intimate, empathic way, is you're managing to, to dissolve the boundary between the other person and you such that you, for them, become an insider rather than an outsider. Mm -hmm. You're not this white-coated expert with his or her arms crossed 
um, offering judgment and advice. You're an insider in the in the trenches with them, and this makes it possible for you to offer possibilities for them to head in different directions that that they don't have to scrutinize in the same way they would if they didn't trust you. You earn their trust, and you you. Uh, your offerings have the quality of um, experience bubbling up from within their being rather than as these um, uh, outside um, distinct nuggets of, of good ideas. And it becomes much easier for them to then entertain them and bring them into some sort of interesting realization. And that's what happens within a hypnotic relationship is your back to that word facilitation, you're facilitating a relationship between you and the person such that they're not having to protect themselves from you. They feel trusting of you and feel in sync with you such that when you offer a suggestion for an altered experience, it can bubble up instead of having to be implemented on purpose. And that makes it possible then for these problematic behaviors or feelings or thoughts or whatever it happens to be to start shifting evolutionally without an effort to control them, but through, through an intimate connection with them. Well, that's an excellent closing statement for us. I think you've really uh, captured it there. And so uh, Dr. Douglas Flemons, I want to thank you for being my guest today on shrink wrap radio. Dr. Dave, I'm so happy to have been here. This was so fun. I appreciate your questions and your close reading of the book. I'm so pleased to have had this opportunity to speak with today's guest, Douglas Flemons, Ph.D., author of the 2020 book, the Heart and Mind of Hypnotherapy. This book is deep, thought-provoking, original, wide-ranging, and challenging. I say challenging because it is likely to cause you to question beliefs you've had about hypnosis and hypnotherapy. A definition of hypnosis is slow to emerge. In fact, it takes several chapters. I believe Douglas described it in our interview as a meander. To get there, we circumambulate through a range of topics bearing on the nature of mind, body, and self. As you will have heard in the interview, Douglas is keenly interested in words, language, and epistemology. In the course of this ramble, he will introduce us to such figures as James Braid, Sigmund Freud, Rene Descartes, Gregory Bateson, and Milton Erickson. All of this is to build a picture of hypnosis as an interpersonal encounter between two people in which the hypnotist is a facilitator who guides the subject into a state of mind in which the boundaries of daily consciousness are dissolved such that new possibilities may emerge without judgment. Milton Erickson, MD, the famous hypnotherapist, is in a class all his own. He often dispensed with the well-known rituals of hypnotic induction, sometimes constructing a rambling story which might be confusing to the rational mind, but with subtle words of suggestion sprinkled here and there in the narrative. Douglas's book puts me in mind of that Ericksonian style, though he clearly is not intending to put the reader into a, quotes, trance. That's another fascinating feature of Douglas's book. He never uses the word trance. I'm not sure, but this might be the only book on hypnosis never to use that word. When I push him on whether or not he believes in trance, his answer indicates that he doesn't like all the historical baggage that word carries with it. I think he's more inclined to describe the state as one of absorption. In addition to the absorption that can occur in mindfulness meditation, Douglas also references flow. 
I don't know if I was in a flow state during this interview, but I did experience something like it, frequently going off my script of planned questions to spontaneous questions and observations that pushed us to the edges of our conceptions, providing little bursts of joy, for me at least. Let me give you a sense of his writing. Here's a bit on the topic of the dissolution of boundaries in hypnosis and flow. Quote, This relational understanding of hypnosis resonates with Csikszentmihalyi's conception of creativity, which he points out, quote, does not happen inside people's heads, but in the interaction between a person's thoughts and a sociocultural context. It is a systemic rather than an individual phenomenon. The systemic nature of creativity, like the systemic nature of hypnosis, can be recognized in part by the dissolution of the boundaries defining a circumscribed self and the questioning of and playing with the boundaries defining conventional ways of perceiving, choosing, and experiencing. Close quote. Here's another worthy fragment. Quote, With hypnosis, you facilitate the indifferentiation of the boundaries that have been keeping the client's circumscribed self distinct from you, from the surroundings, and from the rest of the self, and you invite avolitional shifts in perception, for example, hallucination, a sensation such as analgesia or anesthesia, and actions such as hand levitation. Such hypnotic experiences feel distinctive to the client, as if parts of them are operating independently with a mind of their own. Close quote. And finally, I can't resist sharing one more. Quote, Hypnosis is a window into the relational complexities of interpersonal and intrapersonal communication into the layered and self-referential nuances of how minds and bodies work and communicate. Knowing this, as well as knowing the role of suggestions, expectancy, and meaning in the shaping of experience, is critical to developing any approach to helping minds and bodies to change. Close quote. If you're at all interested in hypnosis, whether as a practitioner or patient, I'm certain you'll learn a lot from this very original and groundbreaking book, The Heart and Mind of Hypnotherapy by Douglas Flemons, Ph.D. And if you're a therapist of any stripe, you may have heard me say in the interview that his chapter on empathy alone is worth the cost of the book. Al Tabor here. I've been a listener of Shrink Rap Radio since, oh, episode 20, and a regular contributor, actually, almost since then. I've been uh, upping my contribution as circumstances allowed, uh, and I think you should be a contributor, too. The reason I'm contributing is that I'm receiving something of great value. I always learn something, which is a prime consideration for me, and often something that changes how I view the world. Uh, what could be better than that? So uh, we all need to chip in and keep Dr. Dave on the main line. Uh, in fact, I recently doubled down on my contribution, uh, figuring that I would kick in a little towards uh, folks that can't pay. Uh, now, for you folks that know you should pay uh, but haven't uh, and you know who you are, it's probably time to kick a little bit into the pot. So let's keep uh, Dr. Dave broadcasting and keep the good stuff coming. Thank you, Al Tabor for your faithful contributions over these many years. You very substantially helped me to keep the good stuff coming. Thanks also to new donors, Jorg Hogeweg, who writes, Thanks for all the great podcasts. Here in the Netherlands, I enjoy your work enormously. And thanks also to Paula Rabitz for her new annual subscription. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Your regular donations mean so much to me. And are you aware that I put out a monthly newsletter in conjunction with the Jung podcast? It's a totally free newsletter, 
and I'll even send you an audio file of a dream talk I gave years ago at the University of New Hampshire. In the newsletter, there's even a recap of my favorite podcast of the month, as well as a blog post from my UK collaborator, Isabel Clark, journalist and Oxford grad, as well as announcements of various opportunities. So to sign up, just go to shrinkwrapradio.com and scroll down the homepage until you come to the green sign-up form. Okay, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to today's guest, Douglas Flemons, Ph.D., author of the 2020 book, The Heart and Mind of Hypnotherapy. I really enjoyed our conversation and learned a lot in the process. Next week, my guest will be Omar Rada, MD, author of The Wounded Healer, The Pain and Joy of Caregiving. Dr. Rada is a psychiatrist with extensive experience in trauma treatment. He calls upon other healers who have suffered burnout to break free from cycles of secrecy, toxic stress, and silent suffering so they can continue to empower and inspire those in their care. So I hope you will join us then. And until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves and others. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.